Just to prepare our hearts to receive God's word this morning, we turn our attention to Romans chapter 8, and we're looking at verses 31 through 39, and we come in this chapter to a chapter that is really a mountain peak chapter, the great riches and truth that Paul brings out here that encourages our heart. I have longed to get to this chapter and just amazed to come to this section and I guess you will uh, be patient with me as I don't want to leave this passage too quickly because there's just so much here. Here's what Paul wrote to the church in Rome in verses 31 through verse 39. He writes this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These marvelous promises come to us and overwhelm us. And they are, to us, the very things that anchor us in the midst of our trials and difficulties, for they remind us of God's marvelous work in our heart and life. Paul here has come to the end of his defense of his gospel. From chapter 10 through ch- or chapters 9, 10, and 11, he is going to defend God's purposes and God's work among the Jews But here, he is particularly demonstrating the riches of God's grace towards us in the gospel of God. God preserves us. God protects us. God helps us in the time of our distress. He is securing us until the end. And we are tempted in the midst of our personal trials of life to doubt this very promise. We are tempted when the difficulties of life come upon us to think somehow, maybe God has forgotten about me. Everyone else around me seems to be thriving. Everyone else seems life is going well. But for me, my life is difficult. Maybe God has forgotten me in the midst of this. And in the midst of this thought, Paul draws our attention to God's marvelous work in the gospel. God firmly holds his people. He secures them. And there is nothing that could come against God's people that would take us from the hand of God. 
Nothing would come upon us that would snatch us out of God's hand and he would then change his mind about us. That he would choose not to love, not to, to carry out the good work that he has started within us. And Paul has been now defending that truth here in these final verses. He's been reminding the audience not only that God's love is secured for his people, but that there is nothing again that's going to separate us from this marvelous love. Though in the moments of our difficulties, we are very much tempted to believe otherwise. I mean, if we measure God's performance by our emotions, we are very much tempted to believe in the midst of our difficulties, God has abandoned us, that he will turn his face away from us, that there might be something that would cause God to separate us from him. And so my hope as we navigate to this passage is that not only would we hear the promises of God as brought out in this text, but that we would have them as the very anchor of our soul so that we would be encouraged as we press through the difficulties and we wouldn't lose hope, but we would recognize that we are children of God, heirs of a promise, anticipating the riches of God's grace to be brought to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is reminding the Romans of these truths in this concluding, the concluding words here in Romans chapter 8. And He has been telling them, again, that because of this promise that the believer is secured. It's interesting, as he builds this case, it is a reminder of this. Our security didn't come because God saw something marvelous within us, as if we had earned it. It didn't come because we, uh, we, you know, we told good jokes and God liked our presence, you know, that he, he enjoyed fellowshipping with us. And it didn't come because we had some promise of righteousness or some promise of good deeds. So then he decided, well, you have a lot of assets. I will bring you into my kingdom so I can use those for my purposes. Nor did God's work come because he thought that somehow we had this marvelous intellect that he would take that intellect and use it for his glory. No, actually, on the contrary, you and I were wretched miserable wrecks of a life and we messed everything up and is in that state God rescued us. And any other opinion or any other view does not quite understand then the gospel of God's grace. Turn over to chapter 5 because you see this laid out in chapter 5 starting in verse 6. Paul brings this out. Again, you don't have to take my word for it. You can just take God's word for it. You and I were wrecks before God rescued us. How do I know that? Because that's exactly what he says. Start in verse 6. Notice this. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, 
we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in our God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Notice in these verses what Paul says about our state. We were helpless. We were ungodly. We were yet sinners. We were enemies of God. That's not exactly a glowing resume for God's, you know, to be entering into eternal life. You know, what, what did you bring? Well, I brought a rebellion. I brought a stubborn heart. I brought an inability. I was helpless. I had no way, no ability within myself to enter into the kingdom. I was lost. In fact, worse than that, I was your enemy. Let me in. Not exactly the greatest credentials. And it was in that state of utter helplessness, total rebellion, a state of being an enemy of God, that God rescued us, brought us to himself, sent his son to die on our behalf, to lay down his life. The point is that we weren't in a neutral state. We were not in this neutral state where we got to choose one way or another. We were certainly in the positive state, drifting towards God. No, we were in a negative state. We were hostile to God, and we were actively running in the other direction. That is when God interjected himself into our lives and rescued us, when we were in that state of rebellion and hostility towards him. That is when the highest price was paid, the giving of his son. That is when the greatest demonstration of God's love was displayed, that when we were enemies, he came and laid down his life. And if that is the truth then, turning back to Romans chapter 8, if God had poured out this marvelous love upon us when we were at our least loveliness, when we were at our worst, when we were most rebellious, if that's when God's love came to us, then who could possibly separate us from the love of God? Who could possibly come up and rise, rise up and change the mind of God? That was the question here that Paul begins to bring out. If we are secured, as Romans 8.28 says, that God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, if God is moving and directing in all things, then what could stop it? In this, Paul anticipates a series of possible arguments, three of them here. The first, which we saw last week, is that maybe there's an individual Maybe there's a person, that that person, that individual can rise up and thwart the work of God. That they could create some kind of message that they could change God's mind. Maybe they could use their resources. They can use their influence, their background, and they can change the mind of God and that God would then abandon his work within us and that we would be lost. And yet, Paul brings out the argument in verse 32. How is that even possible? If God has done the most impossible thing, if he has taken his most prized treasure, his son, and has given his son over for us, verse 32, he delivered him over for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? If God has already paid the impossible price, 
then what other price is there to be paid? That's the first argument that Paul makes here. There's no possible way that there could be any change in God's mind, no matter who should rise up against us, because God himself has already paid the impossible price by sending his son. Who could bring, who could separate us? But there's more. Okay, maybe there's not a person. Maybe there's not a force out there. Maybe we don't have to fear the media. Maybe we don't have to fear a president or a politician. Maybe we don't have to fear an individual that might rise up and separate us from the love of God. But maybe there's an accusation. That's the next charge, verse 33 and verse 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Maybe there's an accusation. Maybe there is some message. Maybe there is something God didn't know. Maybe there is somebody out there who could bring an accusation to God that God didn't think about, that God didn't, was completely caught off guard by. And if he would have known that thought, then he wouldn't have sent Christ for you. He would have left you off the Lamb's Book of Life. In fact, maybe there's somebody who bring a charge and God decide that he wants to go erase your name because he wrongly put you there. What is Paul's response to that? He emphatically, again, reminds us here, there are, there's none, there's no accusation, no charge, that could be brought against us that would separate us from the love of God. Now, thinking about this, I want to draw, out our, draw our attention to that because sometimes we are very much tempted to believe that maybe there was something brought to God's attention that separated us from the love of God. What would that possibly look like? Well, as I thought about it and investigated the scriptures, there's at least three categories or ways that this might have come up. There are satanic accusations that come upon us. There are accusations from others. And then there may be the accusations of our own hearts. So I want to look at those three categories, satanic accusations, accusations from others, and accusations from our hearts. I want to look at those categories and then give you Paul's answer to it. All right, so first of all, the three categories, three ways in which somebody might rise up against us. The first is satanic accusation. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 says this. John writing says there, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, says this, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. John, writing this prophecy is, and hearing what he, and writing down, and what is stated is that there is an accuser of the brethren who is there accusing both day and night. There is persistent regular, hostile opposition to the people of God in the throne room of God. He is there continually discrediting the people of God. He is there relentless in his attacks against God's people. He is there casting doubt on God's work. How do we know that? Because we know those examples in the scriptures. 
In Job chapter 1 and verse 11, for example, Satan enters into the presence of God and says of Job there in God's presence, if you take away his possessions, he's going to deny you to your face. Sure enough, God allows Job's possessions to be taken away, and that didn't happen. So then Satan in in chapter 2 comes along in verse 5 and says, well, if you take away his health, he's going to curse you to your face. And again, that doesn't happen. The accuser of the brethren would seek to discredit the faith of God's people. He'd seek to curse God's people. He would seek to uh, bring an accusation that would cause God to turn away from his own people. This is what Satan does. He is a deceiver. He is a liar. He is one who is seeking to destroy the very work of God. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 5.8 that the, that the devil, our adversary, is prowling about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is moving about seeking to destroy and this is an active work of God, a work of Satan. Satan is actively, regularly opposing God and his work. Turn over to Matthew chapter 4. You can see how this works a little bit. In Matthew chapter 4, in the temptation of Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus Christ, after having been baptized, after having been affirmed as the Son of God from the Father himself, who said, this is my beloved Son, says this in chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, notice, to be tempted by the devil. So the devil comes to Christ in the wilderness, and notice verse 2, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became very hungry. It should be very there, it just says he became hungry. It's like this is the understatement of the scriptures. He was hungry after fasting these 40 days, and it's at that moment that the Satan comes to him, the devil comes to tempt him, and notice the temptation in verse 3. The tempter came and he said to him, If you are the Son of God. Notice, even out of the gate, he is putting suspicion upon Christ. Is this really true? Is this what you really are? If you are this, then you need to do this. Turn these stones into bread. Jump down to verse 6. He continues again. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. There is, again, an accuser of the brethren. And he goes, and this accuser has no restraints whatsoever. He will even cast doubt upon the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. He lies, he twists events, twists the truth. He comes when we're the most vulnerable, the most weak. He comes day and night. He is seeking to bring accusations against the people of God. He is hostile to the things of God. He is disguising himself as being righteous, though he is unrighteous. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. We see this in 2 Corinthians. Paul brings this out in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is, again, activity that is happening all around us at all times. We're just unaware of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You can jump down into... Verse 12 and following, 
Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is giving a defense to the Corinthians about his ministry among them. And at this point, hostile teachers had come into Corinth and began to cast doubt on Paul's credentials and then began to question Paul's ministry and began to call the Corinthians to leave the message that Paul had given them to follow the gospel that they were presenting. And Paul is giving a defense and drawing their attention back to the truth. And he says this in verse 13. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Satan comes as one promising to be an angel of light, comes really as a deceitful worker disguising himself. He is there bringing accusations. Pretending to be on God's behalf, pretending to be a helper to God, pretending to bring credible information, he is coming to accuse and to destroy. It's rather interesting. There's actually one more account I want to show you. If you turn back in the Old Testament to Zechariah, turn to Zechariah. There is an account in Zechariah chapter 3 that is significant. Zechariah. The uh, next to the final book of the Bible, Zechariah chapter of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter three, verses one through five. Not only is Satan acting as again an angel of light, but Zechariah gives us insight, starting in verse one. He said, "Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord." And then notice this phrase, and Satan standing at his right hand. Okay, um, that's the last person I want next to me in the day of judgment. <laughs> Satan right here. I mean, the other day, actually, I didn't tell the first hour of this, probably because my son was there, but my son ratted on me a couple weeks ago <laughs> to my wife. And Jill texts me on it, is like, uh, you know, your son ratted you out. And so, uh, and I was thinking in this, ad, this idea here, the last person I would want standing next to me was Satan, because if there's anyone who's going to rat you out, it's this one right here, the devil. Notice as the text states there, Satan was standing there at his right hand to accuse him. And then the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? I love that statement. Because notice what he didn't say. The Lord rebuke you. This one is perfect. The Lord rebuke you. No, this one is always obedient to me. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say that there was no charge against Joshua. He didn't say that the accusation was wrong. What he said was, I have rescued this one. I have plucked it. I have plucked him. Verse 3, and Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. I mean, everything Satan was saying was absolutely right. The garments were filthy. To which he responds, verse 4, the Lord 
he spoke and he said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to, said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. This is the marvelous work of God. He takes away our iniquities. He takes away our filthiness and gives us in replacement clean clothes. He rescues us. The accuser of the brethren is there. He is there to bring accusations. He is there to bring, to point out faults. He is there to accuse, and certainly he has much to accuse. Again, this, this whole imagery is amazing. Joshua is there standing before the Lord in his filthy garments, and Satan is there. Look at all that filth. Look, he messed up what you had given him, and he's, everything he's saying is absolutely right. And yet the Lord's response, I have plucked him from the fire. And then he cleanses him. See, day and night, the accuser of the brethren comes, and frankly, we have given him more than enough evidence. More than enough proof that everything that he's saying is right. More than enough is given to the enemy of the brethren to let the enemy bring true charges against us. So this is the first. Well, maybe then. Maybe Satan, standing before God, using angelic forces to speak against us that would cause us to be separated from the love of God. That's the first category. Maybe the second category. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's the accusation from others. Again, we we live in a world where others around us observe us. They see our life. Our family sees us. Our neighbors see us. Even others outside will see us and throw accusations. They'll bring their insults, they'll bring their attacks, they'll bring their slanders, they'll speak against us in some way. They will twist our words, twist our motives, read into everything we do, thinking there is evil intent. I mean, I think about this. If you were a laborer, and you worked hard, and you went to work, and you were diligently laboring, following what Paul says, that you do all things as unto Christ, and so you're working diligently unto Christ, and you had a co-worker who was lazy, they have two choices. Either they choose to do the righteous thing and actually start working harder so that they give an honest day's labor for an honest day's wage, or they discredit you. Most of the time, they choose the latter, to discredit, to bring accusations, to twist again your motives and the reasons why you do what you do. And they bring faulty charges and they seek to condemn you and they seek to project their own evil upon you. And in doing that, they seek to bring a charge that you are no longer trustworthy, that you don't deserve the honor that you are receiving. These are accusations from others. Again, turn back to the Second Corinthians 11 passage. I quickly took you away from it, but I want to show you this is exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, again. Again, Paul had been ministering in Corinth, serving that church, preaching the gospel. He spent many, many days there, months shepherding them, teaching them. 
helping them get established. And when Paul left, a group of these teachers came in and they began to seek to discredit Paul altogether. To say that Paul wasn't as trustworthy as he says he was, and in fact, he wasn't even as, uh, as significant as he says he was. Yeah, he came presenting himself as an apostle, but he definitely wasn't an apostle of a of the significant sort. He was a, a lesser kind of an apostle. Notice verse 3, Paul says, But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Notice verse 4, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom, you, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Notice he's saying, look, somebody might come and preach a whole new gospel. Somebody might come and preach a different message or bring a different spirit, and I'm concerned that you might, be drift, you might drift away. Verse 5, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. This was the charge. Paul wasn't Peter. Paul wasn't James, the brother of Jesus. Paul wasn't part of the the most preeminent apostles. He's insignificant. And these false teachers who came in said, we have our marching orders from Peter. We have our marching orders from James, the, the brother of Jesus, the one who lived with Jesus his whole life. We have it, the, our marching orders from Peter, who is the fisherman who walked with Jesus in his earthly life. We come from a superior place. We have superior credentials. I mean, what can Paul appeal to? Some vision that none of us saw? What can Paul appeal to? Some message that he received when he was alone, away from the rest of the apostles? What could Paul possibly know? That was the question. Not only that, but notice verse 6. But even if I'm unskilled in speech, that's the accusation, this guy is some kind of country bumpkin who can't even communicate in the rhetoric of the day. His Greek is poor, his grammar is off, his vocab is limited. What could he possibly teach us? Poor, untrained, unskilled. Maybe his voice was nasally. Maybe he lacked sophistication. Maybe he spoke too fast or too slow. Had an accent that was too heavy. Whatever the case is, he was unskilled in speech, and so he's discredited. On top of that, Paul says in verse 7, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I came, I ministered to you freely, I gave you the truth freely, and am I somehow discredited by this? I didn't receive any gifts. I didn't take anything from you. Am I the robber because I didn't do any of these things? Is my message least valuable or lesser in value because I didn't take anything from you? 
These were the accusations that were brought. That the professionals came in and the professionals received their rewards, so the professionals must be more trustworthy. All of this is accusations from others brought against Paul by these false teachers that the Corinthians were listening to. The question for us is this. Well, maybe, is there somebody who could come along and bring an accusation against us to God that would cause God to change his mind about us? Is there something that could be said or done that God might recognize, oh, I didn't know that about him. Oh, I didn't know that that's what was going on. Oh, I didn't know that's the school he went to. Oh, I didn't know he was limited in that way. Is there some kind of knowledge that God didn't have that these false accusers would come in, some other person, and bring a charge against God's people? The answer, of course, is emphatically no. All right, well, okay, maybe not Satan, though Satan's actively working all the time against us, and maybe not others, but if you and I are really honest, we can bring our own charges, our own charges to the table. Satan's finite. Even our neighbors or our family or others around us, they're not with us all the time. They can't see our hearts. They don't know our thoughts. They're not with us every moment, every time. They don't hear our private prayers. They don't watch our private moments. They don't see our inner motives. But we do. We know our hearts. We know the rebellion within. We know what entertains our thoughts. We know how easily we drift in one way or another. We know the accusations of a conscience that has been informed, whether improperly informed or properly. We know the accusations. We might even have, as uh, 1 John three nineteen and 20 describes, a misinformed conscience that falsely accuses us. That conscience which is going against the truth. We might have a conscience that's working against us in some way and we are tempted to think, well, maybe that charge is legitimate. Maybe that charge that comes from our own heart speaking against us, God would hear. It might even be in the midst of that moment that we are tempted to think that when that charge comes up, that God himself isn't credible. Because if God would have considered this charge, then he would recognize there's no reason for us to be saved. No reason whatsoever. I think it's for this reason of our own guilty conscience, our own awareness that Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 4, I am conscious of nothing against myself, and yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. I even turn my own evaluation over to the Lord. He is the one who evaluates, not me. We know our own faults. We know our own failures. We know the times in which we have fallen short of God's standard and we can bring out very credible examples to recognize that we have fallen short. Turn back to Romans 8 then. That sets up the problem. Where does the charge come from? I mean, consider this. Charges come against us every single day. 
right? If it's satanic charges and he is there day and night accusing the brethren, you and I are being charged every single day before God. And every moment our conscience can be charging us and then certainly neighbors or others, family members who could bring charges against us, outsiders would bring charges against us. The question is then, which one of these charges, could any of these charges change the mind of God? To which Paul gives the answer in verse 33. God is the one who justifies. God is the one who justifies. Who brings the charge? God is the one who brings justification. God is the one who brings pardon. God is the one who removes the debt. Who could bring a charge against us if God is the one who has removed all the debt? Again, even as I frame it up, to believe that there is a charge, an actual moral charge that could be brought against us would have to believe then that God does not have all knowledge. You would have to believe that somehow God lacks knowledge, lacks understanding, that he's still gaining it, and that somebody can come along and be his counselor. Emphatically, that is not the case. Who can bring charge against God's elect when God is the one who justifies? God is the one who pardons. God is the one who removes our debt. God is the one who takes that debt and removes it as far as the east is from the west. God is the one who takes our sin and reckons us as righteousness, as righteous. God is the one declaring us innocent. God is the one granting us his righteousness. God is the one pardoning all of our transgressions, past, present, and future, all covered by Christ when he laid his life down, and all affirmed by God when he declared us just in Christ. And that itself is amazing, and Paul could have stopped right there. But then he adds in verse 34, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Four things that Christ Jesus does that demonstrate he is the sufficient answer to all of those accusations. First, he is the one who died. No sin was avoided. Every sin was accounted for for the believer. Every one of our transgressions was accounted for and it was placed on Christ who died. He paid the ultimate penalty for every single transgression. He died. Not only did he die, yes, he says, yes, rather who was raised. He satisfied that debt in his resurrection. God demonstrated that he was satisfied with the death of Christ by or the sacrifice of Christ by raising him from the dead. He is raised up. What accusation could be brought that God has not already richly satisfied? And again, that would be significant enough to be encouraged, but then Paul says, who is at the right hand of God? That's the uh, person I want next to me in the day of judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, wherever Satan's at, I don't mind if Christ is in the room. In fact, I even want Satan in the room if Christ is there because I want to see his face when he loses. When the grace of God is on display through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and again, 
That would be amazing enough that Christ is in that privileged position. He is right there at the right hand of the Father. He is there close to the Father so that whatever charges came up couldn't possibly circumvent around Christ because he is right there going to hear it all. But then, says there, who also intercedes for us? Just like that Zechariah 3 passage. Yeah, true accusation comes. Can't deny it. And is isn't a measure, you're not there because of Joshua's perfection. No, he was measured there because that one was plucked from the fire. Here, the Lord Jesus, all he has to say is, I covered that one. Every charge, I covered that one. Every accusation that is true, I covered that one. I went to the cross. I died for that one. What possible charge could be brought up then against God's elect if Christ has covered all of those transgressions? What would it be? He's a bad golfer? Like, well, okay, yeah. I'm not going to deny that. First hour, my neighbor was here. I've hit her house a few times with a foam golf ball. That doesn't keep me out of eternal life. There is no charge that come, could come against God's elect. Again, Satan may bring an accurate charge. We're not denying that he couldn't bring a charge that had truth in it. And certainly others could bring a charge as well. We're not denying that others could bring a charge that has truth in it. And we ourselves know our own hearts. It's, It's not as if our own condemnation of ourselves is inaccurate either, because indeed we live with ourselves. We know the standard of God. We know the truth, and we know what we did. So certainly we can bring a charge too. And yet, this marvelous truth of God's grace is that Christ has covered our transgressions. He's covered our debt. So the believer then has the Christ who died for them, the Christ who satisfied the debt, who was raised from the dead, the Christ who is at the right hand of the Father, and the Christ who is presently actively interceding for us, defending us regularly. Who indeed could separate us from the love of God? Think about this. That's all true, and it is. Then the question is, who has the right to that? Who has the right to hold to that particular promise? Who could say of themselves, I have this security Well, Paul's been laying it out in our context. It's those who love God, verse 28. Those who are called according to his purpose. Those who are, again, walking in the spirit, not in the flesh. It is those who are living in newness of life, not those who are living in deadness of the letter. It's those who have believed, and that's what he's going to go on into chapters 9 through 11, and demonstrate that his sovereignty didn't fall short. They just didn't believe. And he's going to demonstrate how it comes to faith. Those who exercise, again, saving faith. These are the ones who had a right to claim eternal life. It is this, and I think boiled down to this. If you think about how would you know you have a right to all this, it's not because you were sinless. It's not because you worked out. Uh, and stayed perfect your whole life, or even after a profession of faith, you stayed perfect after that. No, what demonstrates uh, one who has 
this security as their promise is that they have believed along upon the Lord Jesus Christ and they are regularly, actively repenting. Regularly confessing sin and regularly repenting. Regularly turning from the error of their former way and walking in newness of life because they are demonstrating exactly what Paul says here in verse 28. They love God and they are called according to his purpose. They're walking in humility. They're walking in a love of the brethren. They're walking in confession of sin. They're walking in believing God's message. They're walking in the newness of the Spirit. Now, some at this point, they don't like the message of God's security and salvation, that God would preserve and protect the Christian. Because they think somehow if we teach that, you're then going to encourage everybody just to live in open rebellion to God. Because after all, if he's preserved you and if he's kept you and you have a sense of security until the end, then it's just license to sin. Live it up. Do whatever you want. And I'd say to you then, you don't understand the love of God. The love of God compels us to gratitude. The love of God compels us to love God with our whole heart and mind. And as Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The love of God causes us to yield to the Spirit and, and causes us to walk in righteousness and be a slave of righteousness, not a slave of unrighteousness. And the love of God secures us in the moments of our temptation as we desire to be more like God, more like Christ, and less fleshly. In fact, I don't know about you, but Every day I'm motivated by this. I don't want to give the devil one accusation. Just one more, no more. I don't want to give him a single accusation. Knowing that he is going to stand right there, I want him frustrated with lies. I want him to have to come up with lie after lie so that he would be rebuked on the spot. I don't want to give him one more, and I'm grieved every time there is some motive revealed within because I recognize that indeed I have given the enemy just one more proof. But the flip side is I rejoice that even if I did, Christ has covered me, covers us with his righteousness. He plucks us out of the fire and redeems us, and that is the security of our position, not in our perfections, but in his perfections we rest. Well, next week we'll come back. Well, maybe there's one more charge. Maybe there's something in creation. Maybe something created in this created order that would separate us from God, that would come in and trap us and pull us away from God, and we will answer that last threat next week. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these marvelous truths for us. But they do comfort our heart and do bring us encouragement and they do remind us of your marvelous work. For indeed, you are infinitely wise. You know all things. You are infinitely powerful and there's no force that could come against you. For even if all of heaven should oppose us, your love overwhelmingly conquers or even demonic forces cannot separate us from your love, nor can the powers of this world, or the princes, or governors, or presidents, nor can our own personal fears 
For indeed, you are greater than our own hearts. You marvelously accomplish your good works. For you, God, have rescued us when we were dead in our transgressions, and you opened our eyes to see, and you brought us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son, and you have given us newness of life. So we walk by your power and your strength. We were refreshed and renewed day by day, and so our confidence grows, not because of our focus on ourselves, but because of our confidence in you and in your promises. And so we pray, Father, that as we head into the trials and difficulties of life, when we face persecution and suffering, when we face the various obstacles of life, may we turn and rest on your glorious gospel. We have been protected by your marvelous love and being secured until the very end. So if we are tempted to lose hope, may these promises give us endurance and encouragement so that in all things your power be richly on display. And until that time, may we fill our hearts and minds with your truth so that we would be ready to speak it to our own hearts and to others in all things. Thank you for this study. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.